Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago, then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right, absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's DenaliCanning.com forward slash free. Do you want to save money at the grocery store, eat more organic, whole foods, cultivate food security, and feel more connected to the earth? If so, then growing your own food is a no-brainer. You wouldn't believe how many people come to me claiming that they can't grow their own food. They think they don't have enough space, that they're too busy, or that they simply don't have what it takes. Perhaps you've fallen for one of these gardening myths. If you think you can't grow food, or if you think the only food that you have access to is what you buy in the grocery store, I have a life-changing webinar that you need to see. It's free and will help you unearth your inner gardener. I've helped thousands of people just like you learn to grow their own food, and I'm speaking from my own experience when I say that with the right knowledge in place, there is no such thing as a black thumb. With this webinar, you can begin making your garden dreams come true and start growing delicious, nutritious food for your family. Just text GARDEN to 44222 or go to IWantToGarden.com and you will receive our free webinar about the seven key factors you need to know to grow your own food. Remember, that's GARDEN to 44222 or IWantToGarden.com. You're listening to the Urban Farm Podcast, your partner in the grow your own food revolution. Whether you've just been introduced to urban farming or you're a lifelong advocate, we're sure you'll leave feeling more informed, equipped, and empowered to dig deeper into the soil of your local food economy. With you every step of the way, here's your host, Greg Peterson. Today on the Urban Farm Podcast, we have John Roden to talk about planting for birds. John joined the Audubon in 2009 when he was hired by the New York City chapter to direct citizen science and outreach throughout the city. In 2013, he transitioned to the National Audubon Society, first working on Toyota Together Green program before becoming Audubon's director of community conservation in 2016. John's work at Audubon has focused on engaging new audiences in the organization's conservation efforts, personally and through Audubon's extensive National Network. He holds a PhD in zoology from Duke University. Welcome to the show today, John. Thanks, Craig. It's a pleasure to be here. Oh my gosh, absolutely. I always love talking about getting wildlife in our gardens. 
So I shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us and share more about the path you took to get where you're at now? Well, you mentioned that I uh, have a PhD in zoology, and uh, I actually, for my PhD, I studied parrots oh, in wow. Australia. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I got to spend, and, and in fact, you know, I was, I was much more of a question-driven scientist rather than a taxonomically-driven scientist, meaning that birds weren't necessarily the, um, I, I wasn't bird crazy from an early age, like some of my colleagues at Audubon. Uh-huh. Uh, I actually was much more approached to, like, I was very interested in studying behavior and how behavior, how the current behavior that we see in organisms can relate to their evolutionary history. And it just so happened that birds and this particular group of parrots that I studied in Australia lent themselves mm-hmm. to that work. So, and as I was doing that, spending a lot of time in Australia, sitting out there in the bush watching birds, it just it just totally transported me. I really oh, got wow. sucked in by their beauty and their behavior. You know, birds are probably the the wildlife that we that we humans have the most contact with, right? You see right. them in your yes. garden, you see them in cities, you see them all over the place, and it's just. As somebody that's interested in behavior, I, you know, I really love being exposed to and being around them. I, I've had the opportunity to um, to teach in a variety of institutions, mm-hmm. mostly as an adjunct faculty member, and I've taught animal behavior. And one of the things that I always tell my students as they're sort of trying to put their wrap their mind around how to study animal behavior is just go out and watch pigeons. City pigeons are living their lives right in our face. They right? are, they're, yes. You know. They're finding food, they're finding mates, they're raising their young, they're doing all of that. And it's a really great opportunity to, uh, to get exposure to animals and their behavior and everything. So I, so I spent some time in Australia. I also lived in New Zealand for a while, and there I was working. Um, I directed the native conservation programs for the Auckland Zoo. Ooh. And through that work, I got to work with a lot of um, the landowners in New Zealand that we were working on Kiwi conservation. And, you know, as an American with this accent, I had to do a lot of relationship building and mm. um, and credibility building and it really just it was really a fascinating thing to think about how do we actually link up bird conservation with how we relate to people and that really when I moved back to the U.S. and started working with Audubon was what really drove me to as you were describing it right that I worked to really engage people in conservation work and it's Mm. a lot of it is about building relationships and it's about finding common ground with folks on how we actually, we all want to advance the, you know, our own interests and which are often really, really tied up in the natural world and can both benefit us and benefit birds. And so that's, I think, over time that's evolved from the time I got my PhD to now Mm -hmm. is how do we do that more effectively? And I think Audubon is a great platform for, for that. Perfect. So you mentioned conservation work. Let's kind of define that for our listeners that don't know what that is. Sure. Well, uh, and Audubon's mission is really to to work toward a world where birds and humans can thrive together. Mm-hmm. And I and I believe that we can we can get there, right? So conservation is really about how do we take this 
you know, this biosphere, this world that we've been, that we've inherited from our ancestors, and how do we do a, a good job at actually protecting it and making it better so that when we hand it on to our descendants mm-hmm. that it's in good shape, right? Yeah. And I think that that's both, again, from the human perspective, but also from the rest of the wildlife that we share this planet with, right? How oh, do yeah. we actually take the take the space, all of the interactions that we have, all of that, and how do we actually think about how we steward that effectively so that we can hand that off? So maybe how we can work best with nature? Yes, absolutely. How we can work best with best with nature and how we can actually, I mean, so much of conservation today, I think, is, is not about um, separating the natural world from uh-huh. the more developed world, right? There's just not that real, uh, I mean, there's very few places around the world that are untouched by human right. activities. Exactly. And I think that we just have to think about how we integrate ourselves into the natural world, how we make sure that in that process that we're not harming it, but we're actually working to uh, improve it. Mm-hmm. We're working to make sure that it actually, the ecosystem and the services that that are necessary for ecosystem function are working properly, all of that. So we have to just think very carefully about how we're integrated, how we actually work with the, the natural processes and mm-hmm. the wildlife and everything that exists with us. Yeah. Perfect. So, and also for our listeners that don't know what the Audubon is, and and I, I have to admit, I don't know a lot about it. So tell us, tell us what the Audubon Society is and how it works. Sure. Well, so the Audubon Society is actually about, it was over 110 years old at this point. It was founded in the early part of the 20th century. Wow. And we have a, yeah, it's a, it's a really extensive network of very community-based conservation chapters around the country. So we have over 460 chapters that are spread across the country. Wow. Uh, I just got chills on that one. That's cool. Right. So it's there in communities large and small, everywhere from, you know, there's a chapter in New York City to very small chapters that are um, operating in the rural environment around the country. Mm-hmm. We have 43 nature centers that uh, exist around, as well as a number of sanctuaries. And so a lot of uh, our work is embedded in communities, and, and I, of course, have the benefit of working with a lot of those chapters and and helping them to uh, extend their work and improve it in communities. We have a national organization as well, which is headquartered in New York City, which sort of oversees, sets the strategic direction for the organization and um, helps uh, create tools and resources that can benefit those local chapters uh, for the work that they're doing, mm-hmm. uh, and all in the service of actually helping birds and helping the people that they share their communities with. Wow, cool! Well, so I'm sitting here and I googled Audubon. So I'm I landed on Audubon Arizona, given that we're in Arizona. And one of the mm-hmm. things that I notice on the page is it says Audubon and then Central Flyway and then Arizona, and. Mm-hmm. Can you speak to that? Because I have a sense I know what that is, but I want you to tell us. Sure. So one of the things that we've done, you know, relatively recently in the last 10 years is to try and 
sort of let the birds guide us more in how we do our conservation work. Uh-huh. And so you're probably familiar that a number of bird species are migratory, yep. and they follow migratory pathways between their, their breeding grounds, which are generally in the northern hemisphere or in the north, and their wintering grounds, which are further south. And there's generally, although there's there's not, you know, strict, you know, highways or anything like mm-hmm. that, there's four general flyways that the birds mm-hmm. uh, follow. Mm-hmm. On migration, so there's one along the Atlantic coast. There's one which follows the contours of that. There's one that generally sort of follows the Mississippi River and its tributaries. There's one that follows the backbone of the Rockies, mm. and there's one that follows the Pacific coast. And so there's the Pacific Flyway, the Central Flyway, which Arizona sits in. Yep. Uh, the Mississippi Flyway and the Atlantic Flyway. So those we let the birds tell us. That's the journey that they take right. along this flyway. We work to organize ourselves along those flyways, and so we can actually work toward more full life cycle conservation for the birds. Right. So birds that travel up and down the central flyway, we work to connect the work that's going on at Audubon, Arizona, with Audubon Rockies, with mm-hmm. other Audubon groups within that flyway, so that we can work more, you know, hand in glove. So we can work together with each other across that network to sort of help as you know as birds are either transiting through Arizona that right. you know we can hand them off metaphorically uh-huh. to the um, to the folks up north of them to help with that full life cycle conservation wow how cool is that i had a sense that what it was, that's what it was but i just needed to i needed some clarity on that cool so sure we're we're here today to talk about the you know planting for birds and you know, my first question is kind of a, uh, it's one of those questions like, well, it's obvious maybe, and that's what's the connection between plants and birds? Sure. Well, you know, and it's a great question. And I think that, you know, plants obviously as, you know, they're ubiquitous, they're everywhere, and they provide a lot of sources of, or important resources for uh, a lot of wildlife and humans. But there's some really interesting connections and useful connections between plants and birds. Uh, so they do provide a lot of resources directly for birds, so mm-hmm. meaning that there's, you know, nectar that flowers provide mm-hmm. for hummingbirds. There's right. berries and nuts and seeds that are actually food that are really important to birds. And also the physical structure of plants mm-hmm. can be really important. So um, there's a lot of birds, woodpeckers, bluebirds that actually nest in cavities inside trees. Right. They also, as of course, there's a, a lot of um, the branches provide substrate where other species build their nests on top of, so the structure of plants is really important. Oh, yes. But one of the other things is, is sort of a more indirect resource, and that's insects. And plants provide um, our hosts for a number of insect species, and those are really important to birds, particularly during breeding. Mm. So there's a, an entomologist that works out of the University of Delaware named Doug Palamy, who's done a lot of really groundbreaking work on the uh, connection between birds and plants and insects. And one interesting t- statistic that, that comes out of his work is that uh, 96% of terrestrial bird species, land bird, land species, yeah. uh, eat their babies on uh, insects, and particularly caterpillars. Wow. And that's independent of what those birds eat as adults. So they right. may be feeding as adults, but they feed their chicks caterpillars. And oh my the gosh. reason for that 
is if you drill down into it, right, is that caterpillars are sort of these these fantastic little packages of fat and protein yep. that are really great. You shove those down those chicks, you know, gullets, and yep. it really helps them grow uh, and reach the, you know, be able to fledge, leave the nest. Uh-huh. And so that's really, there's, there's a big connection there. An important source wow. of that protein and fat are these caterpillars and plants, um, you know, because insects lay their eggs on plants and that provides those, those plants provide a lot of the, the growth for those caterpillars. And so that's a really important connection between the birds and the plants as well. Well, and that's a, that's a huge one for gardeners because caterpillars are one of our big nemesis, nemeses. <laughs> right. In, yeah. in the garden, right? Exactly. Yeah. So, in fact, having, you know, having a lot of birds around can actually be a benefit, right? Because those birds will definitely be going after those insects. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. So, so, how does one start wrapping their head around planting for birds? All right. Well, so there's one other sort of important piece to the uh, equation, and that is the origin of the plants. And so, mm. uh, so right. interestingly enough, um, there's, uh, you know, there's been a long evolutionary history between the plants and the insects and the birds that live in, in the U S where mm-hmm. we're operating. And because of that co-evolutionary history, the insects that are, are here in those caterpillars, et cetera, are evolved to exist on native plants, actually plants that they've evolved right. with. And in fact, 90% of native insects really can only feed on native plants with which they've evolved. And so, and, you know, it might be that the, you know, uh, that there's specific phytochemicals or something like that that they, they right. rely on. Or, and so plants that aren't native to the U.S. don't provide as good of a host source mm. for uh, insects, right? So they may have... They may be unpalatable. They just have different phytochemicals that aren't that don't taste good or toxic or whatever. And yeah. so, and there's and again, Doug Tallamy's research has really illustrated this that if you look at native oak species, there's a number of oaks that are native to this country. Um, mm-hmm. Over 550 species of caterpillars can be found on those oaks. And so those butterflies and moths are, are selecting those oaks, laying their eggs, and provides that sort of, you know, the food for them. And then that, that food, those caterpillars then provide food for birds. Right. And then if you think, of, if you think of a non-native species, um, and one of the, the most dramatic examples is the ginkgo, which is a tree that's native to Eastern Asia. Mm. And it's a very commonly used street tree. It does well in poor soils and sort of city environments with less good air quality. There's only five species of caterpillars that have been documented on ginkgos. And so you can see that if you have, if you replace native species and those and that's just um, you know these are proxies for the sort of broader non-native and right. native uh, di- dichotomy but you can see that if you do replace native species wholesale with uh, non-native species then you're actually just reducing the amount of food that's available to, mm-hmm. to birds mm-hmm. and so so that's sort of the background for what Audubon is trying to do which is encouraging people to actually in their in whatever sort of space they have is to use more native plants and 
One thing I want to be clear about is that, you know, and we're talking about urban farming and everything, and so there's definitely, there's plots of land that are, that, that are going to be used for farming, and that's great, and obviously that's an important aspect of all of our lives. Right. But I think there's opportunities wherever people are to include some native plants mm-hmm. in, the, in their plot, you know, whether they're doing urban farming, whether they have a yard, whether they have a patio, whatever, and actually having more native plants mm-hmm. will actually benefit the birds because those are just going to be those that are hosts for insects. Yeah. Wow. beneficial insect. Yeah, exactly. So it sounds like step number one and the biggest step is to figure out what natives plants that you have in the area and nurture those, plant those out more. Exactly. Exactly. And we wanted to help people in that as much as we can. So Mm -hmm. uh, we've launched our Plants for Birds program, which one of the centerpieces of that is a searchable database where people can input their zip code and that will bring them a list of plants that are beneficial for birds in particular. So provide either those direct resources like seeds or nectar or also our really good host plants for insects. So it provides the list of plants that are local to the person's area based uh-huh. on that zip code, what birds that will be attracted or, be, or um, will provide resources, those plants will provide resources for, right. what their local Audubon is, because we, um, we know that mm. uh, planting and, and sort of all the complexities of uh, site design and where, you know, moisture requirements, light, um, all of those sorts of things. And their local Audubon can be a great source of support for that. So it connects them to their local Audubon, as well as a list of uh, nurseries that are that are local to uh. them that, uh, can, that carry native plants. Because, you know, we wanted to be as sort of give people as much information as we could that was locally relevant to them. Right. And that and can sort of help set them up for success. And so that's something we've launched recently. And uh, I encourage people to, uh, if they're interested in thinking about how they might inc- include more native plants in their, in their little patch uh-huh. to, to have a look at it. Wow. That, you know, when you were sharing about that, it was like, uh, you know, I was getting, goosebumps thinking, my gosh, that is an amazing piece of work that you put together. Yes, it's been, a, it's been an interesting and big challenge. You know, as uh-huh. an ornithologist, um, I, I, I sometimes I tell this to people, you know, I've spent many years cramming a lot of bird information into my head. And um, <laughs> I feel like in some, in some ways I've sort of had to actively like I haven't assimilated plant information and I'm kind of kicking myself now because there's Mm. so much to learn about plants and and there's a lot of you know there's so many data layers to the database we've worked really hard to include the you know obviously the plant information the bird information the um the nursery information and it's the first data it's a I mean there are native plant databases around the country where folks can search for you know information about native plants but this is the first of its kind that's actually integrating all that particularly the bird aspect how is this going to help birds which is obviously Audubon's lens that we use right exactly wow so where do people find out about the plants for birds database 
So uh, you can go to Audubon.org, our website. Uh, we have a landing page, which is Audubon.org um, backslash plants for birds. Mm-hmm. And then uh, as well, and there's, there's all sorts of information. There's a really great brief video, which just explains a lot of the information that I've just gone through with you uh-huh, right. about why native plants are better for birds. All sorts of information, you know, about how to how to use plants to beautify your yard. Um, some DIYs on how you can actually do different things, like create seed bombs or nectar for hummingbirds. Uh, and then there's a link as well to the database, which is audubon.org/backslash/native-plants, and that's where you can input your zip code and. It, and it will take you. That's the that's the search criteria. So if you know your zip code, you can <laughs> step right into our to our space. Makes it simple. Oh my gosh, you said something that I have to call you on. You said seed bombs. What's that? <laughs> okay. So seed bombs is something that that you can make. You just and there is a DIY video on our website where uh-huh. you just take uh, seeds of native wildflowers, native to your particular area, yep. and you make up a a little clay and dirt. Uh, paste. You make a ball out of it. You put the seeds in it. When you dr- when it dries, you can just you know put it in. You can put, toss it into a vacant lot. You can put it somewhere. Mm-hmm. And when it rains, it actually will you know disintegrate the, the yep. ball. The seeds will germinate, and you'll have a native wildflower <laughs> sort of bonus there. There you go. <laughs> nice, nice, nice. So you mentioned pigeons a little earlier, and uh, you, you kind of alluded toward. Uh, putting a positive spin on pigeons. Now, we have pigeons here in Phoenix, and we have a lot of pigeons here in Phoenix, Mm -hmm. and we also have chickens in our backyard. So one of the things that I had to do was I had to completely enclose the chicken coop because I was feeding so much feed to the Mm. pigeons. So what I'd like you to do, and you started doing it a little bit, is kind of give us a positive spin on pigeons and maybe some other invasive species that we might have in our space. Oh, goodness. Um, well, I, it's hard to put a positive spin on invasive species. <laughs> but I do, And I get this a lot, as you can imagine, right, as someone, you know, that that loves and talks about birds a lot. And my yeah. family and friends, you know, sometimes ask me to defend birds that they don't <laughs> find particularly beneficial yeah, or positive exactly. in their lives. And, uh, you know, so we're all familiar with pigeons and European starlings and house sparrows, none Mm. of which are native to North America, but are very common in our environment. And I can defend them only from really the standpoint of that I do find them, I just find them fascinating to watch. All of them are, again, sort of living their lives, you know, cheek by jowl with us, right? They're right with us all right. the time. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I think that, I think that you know, I've speculated that one of the things that we find so, sort of unnerving about pigeons mm-hmm. or starlings is that they, I think that they sort of remind us of ourselves, right? They're uh, just kind of scrabblers. They yep. exist in this, you know, these less than optimal environments. They, you know, they, we've all seen the, you know, like the one-legged or the one-eyed pigeon that yep. somehow is still making it. Yeah. And I think that that sort of, that hardiness and that sort of, you can't, you know, you, these these guys are, are really hard to get rid of mm-hmm. and hard to kill, hard to, you know, we just, they're, they're just going to continue to, to live yeah. right by bias, I think that that's kind of unnerving. And, but I think that it just, it's a testament to their resilience, Resili- their yeah. adaptability, yeah. their really their ability to, to 
to thrive yeah. in in less than optimal environments. Again, I, I it's hard for me to to you know quote unquote defend them because yeah. I course, would love to see more native bird species, our yep, exactly. fantastic avifauna that we have here. But, but you know, uh, I think that, you know, a European starling in full breeding plumage, that's a really beautiful, beautiful bird. bird. You yeah. know, it really does. Yeah. It's something to look at. And I do actually often, you know, when I see them displaying and behaving, I actually do, you know, sort of sit there and watch them because they really are kind of spectacular. Um, it, it doesn't mean I wouldn't like to, I wouldn't rather see perhaps, you know, a bullet Oriole yeah. or something like that doing that same thing, but they're pretty, but birds, you know, I, I'm not objective. Uh, birds are just really fascinating. fascinating to you. There to you watch. Go. So, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Well, you did a great job. Uh, and if nothing else, they bring in <laughs> lots of manure for us, for our gardens. <laughs> Good. Yeah. So let's talk about planting for birds and will that also attract and support insect as pollinators as well? Sure, sure. And that's, you know, one of the interesting things, you know, I, I think that we're probably all aware that, uh, aware that pollinators are struggling as well as mm. are, you know, a variety of other um, native species. So bees and butterflies yeah. are, are having a tough go of it. And if we plant native plants, that particularly if we're thinking about this sort of structure and the diversity of plants that we're including, so we're including uh, plants that support, that provide nectar, mm -hmm. uh, as well as other resources, they definitely can help our native pollinators, our native bees and butterflies as well. And again, because insects have co-evolved with the plants that are native to, to the U.S., mm -hmm. that if we're, start, if we're planting more of those, that's, those insects are really good at finding resources. You know, yeah. they're moving around a lot. And so if we actually use uh, or plant plants that are native, we can help support those pollinators as well, some of which then will lay their eggs on those plants and that right. will provide food for birds. And so yeah. it's, you know, but some of those will still get through and they'll still provide, you know, they'll still increase the population of those pollinators. Yeah. Yay. And so does somebody need a big yard? To plant for birds? No, interesting. You know, we want to encourage people anywhere and everywhere to be able to dig in. So if you have a yard, great. You know, there's that's an opportunity. But if you only have a patio or if you're, a, if you're more of an urban dweller and you have a fire mm -hmm. escape, you can still put a little container with a mm. nectar-providing plant on it. Right. That, that's that's totally fine. And there's actually increasing, or, or there's data, you know, people are starting to look at this more, where even small groups of plants can actually provide resources that are, you can have a measurable impact on insects and, mm, and nice. uh, by consequence, birds, you know. And of course, it's, it's, it's better if, it's, if there's connectivity and we have broader patches of it, but even small patches can be beneficial. Yeah. Beautiful. Wow, that's a lot of great information. Thank you so much. So, so I'm gonna I'm gonna shift on you, and I'd like for you to talk about a time you failed, how you overcame that failure, and what you might have learned from it. Okay. Well, I will. Uh, I'm gonna sort of stick on the um, the Plants for Birds program, mm -hmm. and you know, one of the challenges that we have had with the program is that. We received the plant range data from a partner called the Biota of North America program, which has a really extensive and fantastic database of plant ranges down to the county level. Oh, wow. And as I, 
Yes, and as I described to you, our search criterion is the uh, zip. zip code. Yeah. Right, and there, that is not obviously a one-to-one relationship. And there's a lot of the country where um, counties are small and relatively homogenous, and so a zip code from one part of it has exactly the same plant diversity that another part of the county does. That's not the case out west. And I live in Los Angeles. You're in Phoenix. Mm -hmm. So out west, we have these large counties. We have... very biodiverse counties. In Arizona, there's a lot of altitudinal variation. Yep. In Maricopa County, where you are, right, there's yep. it's, there's a lot of variation. Here in L.A., we go from the coast to the mountains to the desert. And so we had some real challenges when we, when we started. You know, if you put a zip code in in L.A. County and you're <laughs> getting plants that, that return for the, you know, the desert that were coming out on the coast or up in the mountains or whatever. And so that was a real problem. And, and so as we, you know, we sat back and we said, okay, well, this isn't, this is not <laughs> a successful right. uh, program if we're not going to be able to give that sort of detailed information, hyperlocal information that we need. And so we discussed it. We came up with a couple different solutions. So the first was that we included USDA hardiness zone. Uh, info in which ah. you guys will be very familiar with. So oh, we yes. we had to get an we had to get an additional data layer to incorporate into into our search results, and that helped a lot. And it, it again sort of the the western part of the country was mm-hmm. the biggest part, although there were some parts down south that that benefited. But it wasn't quite enough information for some of the locations. So we sort of sat back. We did a lot more testing. I got feedback, and some of it was feedback that was, you know, a little bit on the angry side, like, (laughs) what are you doing? This isn't giving us the results we need. So in California, in particular, we incorporated a climate zone data. And so what we did then was look at both um, low temperature tolerances for plants, but also high temperature tolerances Mm, for plants. And so with those sort of narrowing of that, we could really narrow the bands on in in the landscape where plants would, you know, be able to tolerate extremes. Um, both, you know, from just actually weather, but also altitude, et cetera. Yeah. And so, so it actually, it's, it's been an incredibly complex process. And, and, you know, I'm a scientist and I've studied, you know, a lot of behavior, but I'm not a, I'm not a data, a database. I'm not a sort of, you know, programming SQL sort of person. Right. So it's been a lot, it's been a really huge team effort on Audubon's part, pulling in folks from IT, our mm-hmm. digital team, our um, integrated marketing, all of this that have helped sort of figure out the ways to get um, to get around these issues and to really just refine and hone in on the, the proper solution. Yeah. So I think that what I learned from that was that really you need a team, right? Yep. A team is oh, really yeah. a helpful thing. Yeah. People bring such different perspectives. They bring bring different areas of expertise. They bring different skill sets. And that really has helped me as I've led this project to just pull in these different strands and think, oh, okay, how can we solve this? What do we need? How do we do this? Oh, if we need to do that, how do I get, you know, I'm not a GIS expert. How mm-hmm. can I get a GIS layer that can help yeah. solve that problem? And so that team really has, has been yeah. the way that we've um, been able to solve stuff. Yeah. So as you were sharing earlier on about the native plant database and how it was working and the, you know, the effectiveness of it, that was what was going through my mind. It's like, oh, my gosh, mm. 
you know, you know, especially in Arizona and California, that you know, one zip code can be in practically three different time zones, right? right. I'm, I'm, I'm yeah. kidding, of course, but you know, they're they're large, and you know, and then county data data, and wow. So I, that's yeah. kind of what was going through my head as you were sharing about that. It's like, oh my gosh, how on earth did you get to success on that? Yeah. So, so then so it's been quite a journey. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. So, so then, well, then my next question for you is, what do you consider your biggest success? And I'll let you go wherever you want <laughs> on that one. I mean, I think that that again, I would probably. I mean, and I, I. I sort of live, breathe, and think about this program a lot, mm-hmm. and I think that there's there's it, it's really difficult when you're working on a national program like this. That um, it, so it's, it's an interesting tension, right? It's a national program, but it's hyper local in its approach. Right? Exactly, it has, it has to be individual needs, yep. and it has to meet. You know, our local chapters are. The, you know, they're the face of Audubon in local communities, and so we have to support them. Mm-hmm. And I think that through these through these efforts that our team has done, we sort of met that challenge. And I, I, I definitely, you know, I I give talks about this around the country and talk to people about this, and and I always reinforce that it's a dynamic process mm-hmm. in the sense that. We're constantly uh, working to update it. And so I mentioned local nurseries that will carry native plants. Right. Uh, you'll be well aware, right, that that's a very dynamic landscape. You know, oh, yeah. nurseries are coming on the scene. Nurseries are fading away. Nurseries are changing their stock. So how we actually incorporate that, you know, and if I'm in, if I'm speaking to an audience and I say, you know, the nursery that's not listed on our database, tell me about it and I can get it right in there. Yeah. So, so we, it is a very dynamic process, but I feel like I, increasingly the feedback that I'm getting from around the country about it is really positive. Yeah. And so that sort of tension of national program that is hyper-local, I think we're meeting that challenge, like I said, and I think that we really are getting to a place where, uh, you know, we can really, we can with confidence go to, you know, a local person, a local Audubon and say, yeah. here, use this tool and, you know, it's, it, you know, we're going to try and set you up for success and I think that increasingly we're doing that. Beautiful. So what drives you? <laughs> well, conservation, uh, I, I mean, in a word, you know, I um, I, I live in Los Angeles. As often as I can, I get out into the natural world, which is, is certainly easy enough and possible to do here. Mm-hmm. I do, um, I, I volunteer for my local Audubon chapter doing monitoring. And I, I just, I just want to, I just want to leave the world or, it, and the world is, when I say that, it's, it's sort of like whatever, you know, like my little world. I just want to leave that in a better way than when yeah. I got it. <laughs> you know, I just think that we all yeah. need to, it's always in the back of my mind, like what are the consequences of my actions, mm-hmm. both, you know, like how I do my work, but also how I live my life, you know, how I, how, what's my water usage, you know, how am I being a good, responsible citizen? And so I think that that drives me in, in sort of every aspect of my yeah. life. So, yeah, so I would say conservation and just thinking about how can I continue to improve myself 
from that standpoint. Yeah. Nice. Nice. So I'm all about education, and I have to know, is there a book that's been influential for you in this process in your life? Yes. So, you know, I mentioned that, you know, obviously I'm an ornithologist, and I've had a learning curve with regard to plants, and there's this amazing book by um, by that uh University of Delaware professor that I mentioned, Doug Tallamy, called Bringing Nature Home, uh-huh. which is, and I know that, uh, I mean, I read it as soon as I was given responsibility for this program, and it was really, it just, he's a great writer, he laid out all of this sort of information that I've been trying to impart to you in a very clear and concise and compelling way, uh-huh. so I think that that helped me um, not only wrap my round or might wrap my mind around all this the complexities of the these sorts of issues but also mm-hmm. helped me think about how I communicate about it both in, you know sort of in this environment to people that I just randomly encounter at parties you know and they say right. what you know what are you about and I you know so all the ways that we that we can talk about this small and large and so that I think has been a really influential um for this particular aspect of my work and the the stuff that I care about. It's been a really essential book. Wow. Nice. It sounds like a good one too. It is. And it's, it's just, it's, it's super accessible. You know, some of the, you know, there's some complex issues with this, but he's, he just breaks it down. So it's really simple to understand why this is important. Perfect. So what one final piece of advice do you have for our listeners? (laughs) Well, I would say just jump in, right? You know, Mm -hmm. there's, as I said, there's, you know, we want anyone anywhere to feel like that they can dig in. And I don't, like, I, the point of our program isn't for everybody to, like, rip out every last, you know, square foot of turf grass and, right. and put natives in. Although, if people want to do that, I certainly wouldn't persuade <laughs> them of it. Right. But just, but just, like, any little bit helps, mm-hmm. right? You can, you can participate in this no matter where you are. And I think that even if, for whatever reason, you, you have no patch, you don't even have a fire escape, if you go to the database and you put in your zip code, it will link you with your local Audubon, and they have, they definitely have opportunities for you to participate. They're yeah. doing local restoration work. They're doing things that are helping your environment. And I think that just, you know, jump in. It, it doesn't necessarily take a lot of time or even a lot of effort, but it can yeah. actually have big payoffs. Yeah. Yeah, we have a really great Audubon Center here in Phoenix, actually. You do. I've been there. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, uh, they are fantastic. Yeah, it kind of it kind of merges the the lower wetlands. Yes, we do have some mm-hmm. wetlands in Arizona. You uh, do. And uh, it, you know, it, it, so there's actually ponds next to the yep. river. Uh, so it, it's a, in a riverbed, and it's a really cool place. Do you have? Do you? It is. Have anything you can share about it? While I'm while I'm sure. talking about Arizona. So yeah, I love Arizona. So the Rio Salado Center that you're referring to, uh-huh. it's it's a really fantastic place and I encourage people if if they have the ability, you know, if they're local, go to it. They've done a fantastic job actually at restoring that the river and that pond system you're talking about mm-hmm. with native plants. Yes. And it has had really dramatic effects. So there's, and they would, I don't have to top of my head, um, can't tell you the exact numbers of species, but before they started the work and, you know, and it was sort of this, a 
apocalyptic environment, you know, yeah. well, it's probably a little bit, <laughs> that's a little hyperbolic, but it was, you know, there was like just tires and stuff there. Yep, exactly. There was very few bird species, but now it's just this incredible environment with cottonwoods and yep. other local, local native species. And there's so many bird species there. I was there in January of this year and we went birding the couple mornings that I was there and you're just seeing, you know, you see all sorts of warblers, you see all sorts of waterfowl, right? Mm-hmm. That is just, you wouldn't necessarily expect to see in the middle of Arizona, but they're there and they're doing a, they're doing a fantastic job at the center. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Well, thank you so much for that. I, uh, I at least wanted to do a shout out to them given I live about uh, 10 miles north of them. Yes. So. <laughs> yes. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the show today, John. It has been a treat getting to chat with you. Absolutely. It's been 100% my pleasure. Um, I've really enjoyed it and and really appreciate you giving me the opportunity to talk about the program. Thank you. And so how can our listeners find out more? Sure. Well, visit Audubon.org, our website. There's actually, it's, it's, we've, relatively recently we've redone the website it's a fantastic storehouse of um, resources and information about all of Audubon's work Mm -hmm. uh, and about news relevant to birds and bird conservation and then if you go to the conservation tab you can find the link to the plants for birds program uh, and it has again there's a lot of information there there's all sorts of ways that um, information about how people can get engaged with mm-hmm. it and then again there's a link to the database and so it's sort of Perfect. a one-stop shop it can direct you to all the resources that we have there great 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 so you can find show notes from today's podcast at urbanfarm.org forward slash plants for birds well that's it for today thanks for joining us on the urban farm podcast Do you want to save money at the grocery store, eat more organic, whole foods, cultivate food security, and feel more connected to the earth? If so, then growing your own food is a no-brainer. You wouldn't believe how many people come to me claiming that they can't grow their own food. They think they don't have enough space, that they're too busy, or that they simply don't have what it takes. Perhaps you've fallen for one of these gardening myths. If you think you can't grow food, or if you think the only food that you have access to is what you buy in the grocery store, I have a life-changing webinar that you need to see. It's free and will help you unearth your inner gardener. I've helped thousands of people just like you learn to grow their own food, and I'm speaking from my own experience when I say that with the right knowledge in place, there is no such thing as a black thumb. With this webinar, you can begin making your garden dreams come true and start growing delicious, nutritious food for your family. Just text GARDEN to 44222 or go to IWantToGarden.com and you will receive our free webinar about the seven key factors you need to know to grow your own food. Remember, that's GARDEN to 44222 or IWantToGarden.com. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen three days a week for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. 
If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18 and that was a long time ago, then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right, absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's DenaliCanning.com forward slash free.